I'm so grateful that Patton was able to lead us through the previous few verses uh, in Ephesians chapter 5. And if you have your Bibles, that's where we're going to be again today is Ephesians chapter 5. And we'll start in verse 18. If you were here last week, you know that we were talking a little bit about what it means to live wisely in a world uh, that especially in what we confront today is really evil. And especially with all of the evil in the world, how do we live wisely? How do we as believers confront that with the way we live. In fact, Ephesians 5.15 says, pay careful attention then to how you live. In other words, making sure that you're not just running by kind of with your mind in neutral. We talk about that a lot around here. We don't want your mind to be in neutral. We want you to be fully engaged in what God's doing around the world, particularly what God's doing right here at home. And we want you to be able to see those things clearly. Because I, I just say this to you again, so much of what we're facing in our world and in our Christian life, it's a thinking man, a thinking woman's game. You have to have your mind engaged to be able to see these things and to be able to understand what the subtleties of evil, what the subtleties of good are, so that you can know the difference. And the main point last week, really the, the, the point of those verses was pay attention to how you walk. And as we come to our verses today, what they really are is an add-on. They're an extension to that, that kind of idea of paying attention then to how you walk. And so I think that's really critical for us in the days that we're living. I wanna read that for us this morning. Ephesians chapter five and verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled with the spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. I remind you again that Paul's writing to a primarily Gentile audience and, and he had some rich instruction for them that they may not have had in their previous lives because of being Gentile. They wouldn't have had the, the rich instruction of the Old Testament in their lives. And so what he's doing here is kind of bringing that to bear. If you read the Old Testament, you obviously would have read a lot about what it meant to abstain from being drunk, to, to make sure that you're never a part of that. And so Paul's giving that as an add-on to them as he says, pay attention to how you live and I don't want you to be drunk with wine. And what he's really giving them is a contrast in control, and he's about to give them this kind of final example of living wisely in a world that is not wise, in a world that moves away from the Lord, and it seems as he's doing that, that drunkenness is a problem that he confronted over and over again in the Gentile churches that he wrote to. He, he would say this often in the New Testament, that, that being drunk was a problem. He'd say, you, you need to avoid that. Don't, don't fall into that trap. And he spoke to it as he addressed these other Gentile congregations. He does the same here. Now, I know what you're thinking. Pastor, is this about to be about drinking? Yes, it is. Thank you for asking. And you just buckle up and come right along with me. But it's not really about drinking. It's about being controlled by the Holy Spirit. Okay? So I want to I just get that out there. And maybe you're already asking the question, I, I got to know, is he going to say that drinking is wrong? No but with some explanation. So if you're looking for an endorsement from drinking, 
or for drinking, wrong church. Never gonna endorse it. Never gonna tell you that it's gonna be a good thing for you. Never gonna tell you that it's gonna be the best thing for you. But I wanna get to this this morning because oftentimes we ask this question, is drinking prohibited by scripture and by the letter of the law? No, but don't be relieved because a thoughtful approach to this really has to be necessary. You know, one of my friends uh, recently went to Yosemite National Park and I was asking him all about it because I'm going to be close to Yosemite this summer. The Southern Baptist Convention is going to be in Anaheim, California. So that's as close as I'll ever be probably to Yosemite National Park. And I would love to go there. I mean, I just think it would be. It's not going to work out for me to go. But as I was doing a little bit of reading about that, you know, one of the things that happens when you go out west and particularly you go to the national parks, one of the things they talk to you about all the time is the danger of bears, right? You hear this all the time. If you're gonna be out in the wild, you need to make sure you're about bears. Can I just tell you something that's kind of fascinating that I discovered as I was looking at that? The National Park Service has been keeping statistics of all the fatalities that have happened in Yosemite National Park since 1872. And you hear about, you know, carry your bear spray, make sure you keep your food off the ground, all this kind of stuff. Do you know how many people have been killed by bears since 1872 in Yosemite National Park? Seven. So there's a lot to do about bears. What they really should be doing is handing you a life preserver as you walk in the park because 121 people have drowned, but we don't ever talk about that, right? So I want the life preserver, maybe not the bear spray. And, and the reason that I, I bring that up this morning is because often in our lives, we're told of dangers and we're made to, to feel like these dangers are, are just right around the corner from us and, the, and they're just ready to take us at any time. For, for instance, did you know that the average cost of a car in America this year, new car is going to be $47,000. That's amazing. And you say, why are cars so expensive? Well, I mean, you connect a smart computer up to it every time you turn it on, called your phone. That costs money. You probably now have a backup camera on your car or a, a collision warning system. I, I was in a friend's car the other day and, and I was driving it and I, I made a lane change and the seat vibrated, it scared me. I didn't know what was going on. I started looking underneath what, what's happening, right? That's a, a drifting lane collision. So, I mean, all these things cost money. Do you know how many people in 2019 died from car fatalities? It was like 36,000. It's a lot, right? We often hear about gun violence in America. And the Pew Research Center tells us that in 2020, there were a number of people that passed away from gun violence, murdered. 19,000 people lost their lives. And so when the next election cycle comes, they're gonna talk a lot about those 19,000 people. And you're gonna hear about cars, and you're gonna hear about those kind of things, but no one's talking about the effect of alcohol in our country. No one probably because our politicians like to drink it so much. But can I just give you a, just a staggering statistic? At the turn of the new millennia, the, the CDC decided to do a couple of studies about the economic impact of alcohol and, and the real cost of what was going on. So in 2006 and 2010, they, they kind of did this study. Do you know that 95,000 people died from excessive alcohol consumption in 2010? Now, we take the cars, and we take the guns and we add it up, we're still not even there. In fact, last year, studies just coming out say that 100,000 people died from excessive alcohol consumption, but we don't talk about it. And so it's like the, the drowning in Yosemite Park, we ought to be handing you a life preserver instead of the bear canister of, you know, of mace to keep that away, but we're just not talking about it. We, we, we don't ever bring it up. We, we don't talk about the economic impact of 
$223 billion every year that it costs us to deal with the fallout of these things. And, and I just remind you of this. It, it's kind of like when you go to buy a lottery ticket, of which I don't, by the way, but maybe you do. If you go and buy that, have you ever noticed they have these little signs like, have a gambling problem? You've been in the grocery store, you've never seen that sign by the spinach salad. Have a spinach problem? If it weren't a problem, there wouldn't be those signs. Do you see what I'm trying to get at this morning? So what I want us to see is, is that we have to be thoughtful about it. And, and, and we have to, as a church, take a, a little bit deeper look at this because I think that we need to talk about it. And you may say, well, why aren't we talking about it? And, and, and truth be told, I, I haven't preached about this in a long time. And if you're wondering, man, is he preaching about this because he found out I had a drink last night? No, I'm preaching about it because it came next in Ephesians. And, and that's why you, you may have had it penciled in on, in your Bible for a while going, I wonder what he's going to say about it. But I think it's important for us to say something about this because a lot of times in the church, this has become just like many of the other cultural issues. We've just accepted it. We've said that it's good and that everybody should do it and pastors should do it and everybody. And I just disagree. So before we talk about being filled with the spirit, can I just answer a couple of common maybe questions or pressing issues about alcohol. And as I do, I just want to put it out there just so that you know, I'll, I'll play my cards right now. The leadership of your church doesn't drink. The, the pastors don't consume alcohol. The, the deacons don't consume alcohol. We just don't do it because we don't think it's wise. So a, a couple of things that might be helpful for us this morning. First, in the Old Testament, three words are used for wine. And in the English, we kind of get two out of that. Uh, three words used for wine. Uh, and, and, and what you see is there's the word that would just be common, wine. There's a word that it gets translated a lot of times in our English versions as beer or strong drink. And then there's a word sometimes called new wine that is more unfermented, hadn't gone through the full process yet. And so when we read that, it's important for us to kind of think about it. Uh, wine was naturally fermented. Beer or strong drink was obviously something harder. And, and beer and strong drink and wine are often coupled together and condemned in the Old Testament for those who would be following the Lord. In fact, if I could read this for you in Proverbs 20 and verse one, it says that we have a wisdom issue here. Read it with me. It says, wine's a mocker, beer's a brawler. Whoever goes astray because of them is not wise. So what it's saying there is if, if you're led astray by those things, something in your life is saying you're missing a wisdom issue. It's obviously a wisdom issue. So if we have a wisdom issue and we look through the scripture over and over again, we really see this prohibition to being drunk and the consequences of excessive drinking condemned. You, you, you can't make an argument any other way for that. It, it's absolutely condemned for us. New wine was different because it hadn't gone through that great fermentation process. That's, that's kind of number one thing that we need to know as we look at that. Secondly, that we might need to know, people will say, well, what about for medicinal purposes, pastor? I mean, what, what about that? Proverbs 31, six, in fact, addresses this. It says, give beer to one who is dying and wine to one whose life is bitter. And it was common, if you think about it, for medicinal purposes for people to take this. And in fact, even as late as the Civil War, you have field surgeons doing two things before they amputate someone's leg. They, they absolutely get them hammered with whiskey and then they give them a stick to bite on. Now, I don't know about you, but if you were to ask me like, you know, well, what about this for medicinal purposes? I'm not, fine. Do you, when you go to the doctor and you're about to take a surgery, do you ask for the stick too? I mean, is that, is that, have we, have we moved on from that at all? You know, or are we just like, no, give me the whiskey and the stick. I'm gonna bite that thing. We, we don't, we, we have other options today that obviously we didn't have as we dealt with that. 
in the older days. You might be familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan who when he finds the person who's been beaten and robbed and left for half dead, it, it said that he took oil and wine and he bandaged the man's wound. I mean, obviously there's a medicinal purpose there, but we just don't have to do it anymore. In fact, in Paul's letter to Timothy, one of his protégés, he tells Timothy, listen, I know that you've just been drinking water, but for those stomach ailments, you need to take a little bit of wine. Don't just drink water only anymore. Take a little bit of wine. Water was an incredibly important issue. It is all around the world, and we don't really have that issue anymore. I guess we have clean water coming out of the taps, or you can at least purify it in your home. That's probably not the pressing issue, and we have multiple opportunities to drink all kinds of different things. I mean, you can go get all kinds of flavor of soda that you want. You can get vitamin infused water if you want it. You can get energy drinks if you want it. You can make tea. You can make, I mean, there's a thousand different things you could do, but we really don't have the issue of it necessarily being a medicinal thing. Maybe unless your doctor just tells you that's what you need to do. I was in my doctor's office a couple of years ago and he was kind of giving me the business about ice cream. You know that I love ice cream. I don't eat it often, but I love it. I think any day without ice cream, honestly, is a travesty. And so a lot of my life is sad, just to be very honest with you. Try to show a little self-control with that. And he was saying, you know, you really at your age, that, that's always fun when your doctor starts saying at your age, you know, that means what he's saying is you've, you've crested, pal. We're on the downhill slide. He was saying, you need to watch eating those cookies and the ice cream and that kind of thing. And I looked at him and I said, well, i tell you what, I will make you a deal. I will give up cookies if you give up liquor. And he said, have a cookie, <laughs> right? I mean, honestly, we, we don't have to have it for medicinal purposes anymore. It, it's just different. Now, if your doctor says something different, that's fine. But let's be honest about what we're doing with it. So first, we have a couple of different words. Secondly, it's, it's not really a medicinal thing anymore. Third, I think is this kind of, in, because we're in Nashville, I'll just put it this way, it's country music theology. We live in Nashville and that means maybe we form a lot of our theology from country music, like bad things like saying like, the man upstairs. Please don't ever say that to me. God has a name, he's revealed himself. He has many names, in fact. If you ever read the Bible, you'll feel, find that he's revealed himself as, as, as the God who provides, the God who saves, the God who heals, Jesus, Holy Spirit. I mean, God, God has many names. And if we kind of base our, our ideas on that, sometimes what happens is we, we look around and, and we think that, that God is, is kind of like this, this benevolent guy upstairs. And we take that kind of from the country music kind of theology. And, and maybe this is the point because we're in Nashville, you stop saying amen and you say yeehaw at the end of the service. Please don't do that either. I mean, but, but you understand what I'm saying. It's kind of silly to do that. But a lot of people today actually believe that Jesus is like this cosmic cool guy bartender. Is that really it? I mean, when you search the scriptures, is that really it? And I know what you're gonna say. He turned the water into wine. I know I've preached that. Thank you. I appreciate that. But, but I wanna ask you a question about that. Can we have a thoughtful, maybe, discussion about that for just a minute? It's true that Jesus turned 120 gallons or so of water into wine. Now, knowing the prohibition that's all throughout the scripture against being drunk, do you imagine that Jesus turned that into a frat party? 
Do you think that that's what happened or do you think that Jesus might have made new wine? I don't know. It's not maybe as clear as we'd like it to be from the scripture, but Jesus came to fulfill all the law. And so as he does that, I, I, I just don't see Jesus going, hey, don't get drunk, here's 120 gallons, get hammered. And it, doesn't, it doesn't make sense. So let's be thoughtful about it. I think one of the things that happens is that in the older days, one pastor kind of described it like this. There used to be a fence around this topic saying that it was something for believers to avoid. And the reason that this was that way is kind of like when you're out in the country and you come to a fence, a wise person asks, wonder why the fence is here. Not, hey, let's jump over it. Something good must be on the other side of it because you might jump into the pasture and find a bull. So a wise person kind of stops. I remember hearing a pastor say that and thinking, that's a great thing. But in the church, we've jumped past that fence. We, and, and in our culture we have, we used to say that these things were were important for us to understand that they were dangerous for us. It's like gambling. You know, right now, I mean, gambling's everywhere. Sports betting, all those kinds of things. And I just gotta tell you, I think there's a fence there and it needs to be there for a reason. I think we're not thinking about the unfolding generational toll that this is going to have. And if I could just tell you, just if I could just step aside from the, the scripture for a second and just give you a, a little life experience here from being your pastor. You don't sit in my seat, so you don't see the other side of this. Can I tell you three things that will keep you out of my office? I'd love to see you, but not in my office. Like we can go to lunch, you can have me over for coffee, tea, something like that, that'd be great. But when you come into my office with your family, normally it's because of a problem. Can I tell you just, and it's just three, and it's almost these three exclusively. One, Drinking and drugs. That's how people land in my office, drinking and drugs. Two, unfaithful to their spouse. Some kind of sexual deviation issue. Three, money. That's it. I mean, that's it. it, it it's an amazing thing. But you don't see the human toll of that like I get to see it. You don't get to see the human toll of that. And I've seen it in a couple of different ways. If I could tell you kind of that human toll, I've seen it in my family. I've seen what it's done to my family. I've seen the devastation that it causes. I saw it as a pastor in a small church where I happened to be the chaplain at a sheriff's office. Go out riding with our guys. You know, in all of that time, I can't think of one time where we arrested somebody or or something had happened where honestly drugs and alcohol weren't the cause of why somebody was stealing something to feed a habit or the reason they were having a domestic issue at home. It's just, it's just factual. And then as a pastor, to see the devastation of this. So if you're asking, when are we gonna be having the wine tasting tour at Judson? <laughs> we're not. I hate to disappoint you, you have to go somewhere else for that. Uh, but I want you to remember something. I mean, we have an entire church on our campus that meets called Recovery Church because this stuff is serious. It's not to be trifled with. Now, enough about drinking. Don't do it. Let's be filled with the Spirit. Look at what he says in verse 18. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but the contrast then is be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So he says to these believers, there's nothing that should be in control of your life except for the Holy Spirit. If you were here a couple of Sunday nights ago, uh, you heard in our renewal conference, Dr. Ronnie Floyd speak about what it meant to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And I'm just gonna steal it. You can go back and watch it. I'll give him total credit for it. He said there were three ways for you to understand the filling of the Holy Spirit or to be filled by the Holy Spirit. You take these three steps. The first thing that you do is confess sin. You know, the Holy Spirit resides in our lives. God has come and taken up residence in your life. And when you confess your sin, you're making your relationship right with the Lord. So we do that first. Then we surrender our lives. Now, I wanna just say this. A surrendered life of a believer will accomplish much. And I think we underestimate what that means. Uh, but, but you being a surrendered person to the will of God in your life will accomplish so much for the kingdom. And so he says to us here, uh, first, confess, surrender, and then be filled. It's asking God to fill you. It's a constant thing. Uh, that's contrasted in the scripture with quenching the Holy Spirit in our lives, which we do by sin uh, or by selfishness in our lives. Nothing should control us is what he's saying, but the Holy Spirit. And, and that, that could be anything that we're talking about here. He, he points out drinking, but I mean, let's just say food or lust or money or passions or anything else. There's nothing that should control us but the Holy Spirit. And when the Spirit's in control of us, what's happening is we're being controlled by actually what resides inside of us. And that's the very presence of the living God. When God took up residence in your life, Jesus said that he was going away so that the Holy Spirit could come. And we find in Corinthians that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's living inside of us. And as God has taken up residence in our lives when we are saved, the Holy Spirit now dwelling in us gives us the opportunity to live out the life that God always called us to. When Jesus said in John 10, 10, I've come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. That's the abundant life is a sacrificed life, a surrendered life to the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. And our job in that is to not quench the Holy Spirit. Now, it's easy to quench the Holy Spirit, isn't it? Driven in Nashville traffic lately? Easy to quench the Holy Spirit. Had an argument at work lately? Easy to quench the Holy Spirit. Dealt with children in your home lately? Easy to quench the Holy Spirit. Dealt with parents in your home lately? Easy to quench the Holy Spirit. It goes both ways, doesn't it? It's just the way that it is. And so for us, as we do this, what does it mean for us to not quench the Holy Spirit so we can be filled with the Holy Spirit? It means submitting our lives constantly to what God's word says. Now, there are three outworkings of this that become very important. And I don't want you to run by this. It becomes very important. Notice these three results of the Holy Spirit being filled in our lives or in control of our lives. Verse 19 says this, There'll be joy, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord. You notice that a song begins to birth, burst forth from the church as they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They begin to sing. And I love it when I really hear you singing. I, I think there's something about a church that is filled that song just burst forth. They, they sing. They're a singing church. I'll never forget a number of years ago uh, when presidential candidate Bernie Sanders visited Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. If you know anything about him, he's of the Jewish faith. And one thing that he said was, I've never heard singing like this when he was in their chapel service. Why is that? Well, we have a lot to sing about, don't we? The old hymn said, I sing because I'm happy. 
I sing because I'm free, right? I mean, we have a lot to sing about. We just talked about singing and remembering all of God's benefits in our lives and remembering all the good things that God has done in our lives. And as we sing, it's a sign that we are filled with the Spirit. Now notice what he says. There are a couple of songs that we ought to sing. Psalms, spiritual songs, and hymns. Now, if, if you want to look at it like this, what he's talking about is the Psalms obviously would have been from the Old Testament. Uh, they were often sung as Psalms. If you've ever read any of the Psalms of Ascent that start in like Psalm 120 and kind of move forward for uh, a few of those Psalms, they, they would sing those Psalms as they moved up their way towards Jerusalem at Passover. It was a, a great time of celebration and singing. So those would be kind of very traditional. The, the early church had obviously already adopted hymns in their lives and we think about hymns and I think about some of the great hymns of the faith that still mean so much to me. Holy, 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 Lord God almighty. How firm a foundation ye saints of the Lord are laid for your rest in his excellent word, right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Be thou my vision, we sing these songs. They're, they're hymns. Then they're spiritual songs. And notice what he's saying. It, it's, it's all of these things. It's not right. If you were to ask me, do you have a preference? I have preferences. You do too. It doesn't matter. It's not what he's saying. He says that the church comes together and they sing these songs and they sing them for the joy that's in their heart. It's a little bit like when a young man finds a lady that he's fond of. He gets a little pep in his step and he starts singing some of those old sappy love songs. Tunes his radio to some of those things. Begins to think about those. Why? Because he's happy. It produces something, produces a song in his heart. And as he listens to those, it's because he's excited about what's going on. For the church, when we come together and we're filled with the Holy Spirit, there ought to be singing. There ought to be joy. There ought to be melody being made. It shouldn't be a bunch of kind of the frozen chosen sitting here like, well, we're really glad God saved us, but we're not really gonna sing. No, we ought to be singing. Because God has done so much in our lives as a result. Not only is there joy, but there's thanksgiving. Look at verse 20. He says to the church, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. A person who's filled with the Spirit is a thankful person. They recognize God's work in the small spaces and the large spaces of what God's doing. They see him in the lilies. They see him in the universe. They see him in the person. They, they see him in the people. They, they, they see it in the small and the large. They don't simply thank him for the big things. They thank him for the small things. Just this week, Kathy and I were talking about as we walk through our neighborhood, there's a house that we walk by often and we never walk by that house without thanking God for the people that live in that house because they have just meant so much to us and they don't even realize it. They have no clue that this has happened uh, uh, in, in our lives because of them, but they have just blessed us immensely and we're thankful for those things even as we just pass by on a walk. What are you thankful for? Are you thankful for your salvation this morning? Are you thankful for what God's doing in your life? Are you thankful for what's approaching? Are you thankful for what has been? All of those things make us to be a thankful people and that happens when we're spirit-filled. Now, let me tell you something. When you're not spirit-filled, you won't be thankful, you'll be a complainer. It's how you always know. Spirit-filled people, even in the midst of their dark days, are thankful. You'll talk to them and they'll say, this has been a difficult season. But I tell you, God has been good. And I'm thankful for that. 
I'm thankful for how we've seen it. I can't tell you how many times I've walked into a hospital room or a family as they're, they're kind of at the, that last season of life with their loved one and they're just talking about thankfulness. Well, we're just so thankful for what God has done. This, is, this has been tough, but it's been good. God has been so faithful to us. God was faithful to mom or dad. Dad or mom loved the Lord. They're thankful even on their hard days. Are you thankful for today? Are you thankful for this season? I think one thing that often bothers me about this verse is that it says giving thanks always for everything. Everything. Are you thankful for trials? I find myself thankful for blessings and kind of frustrated with trials. But this verse steps right up and and kind of smacks us in the face and says, no, 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 no. You don't get that opportunity. You have to be thankful for all of it. You have to understand that God's doing something that you can't see. And that's hard, isn't it? That's that's hard for us to see past the moment. It's hard for us to see past the present to what God might be doing or or why God would allow a difficult situation to come into our lives and and us to have to walk through that. But he clearly says that when we're spirit-filled, we'll be thankful, we'll be joyful, we'll be thankful. And then this final one is is a funny one, isn't it? He says that we'll be a submissive people. Look at verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Believers can submit to one another because of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. Listen to what Dr. Curtis Vaughn said about this in Ephesians 5.21. He said, submission, it's opposed to rudeness, haughtiness, selfish preference for one's own opinion, or stubborn insistence on one's own rights. Have you ever been in a church where people were insistent about their rights? That's a fun place to be. Hey, we need you guys to sacrifice over here. We got to do something a little different. No. Great. Hey, we really have an opportunity over here to step into it. Well, that will affect me and I don't like that. Hmm. Believers who are spirit-filled are joyful, thankful, and they submit to one another. And it makes for a great church because people aren't just rolling over with a whatever attitude. That's not the idea behind this. It's it's not like they just kind of have a laissez-faire kind of, whatever, it doesn't matter. That's not what he's talking about. Submission is the action of you placing yourself under someone else's authority. It's, it's you saying, I will deflect my rights for someone else's. I mean, it's, it's a conscious decision that I think can only be made under the control and the power of the Holy Spirit. And when someone has this attitude, they're constantly considering what's best for the other person, what's best for the body of Christ. And maybe that makes us say something like this. Well, you know, the students might need my Sunday school classroom sometime, and it may mean that I need to move. Really? How would you be with that? Would you be excited about that because we had a growing student ministry or would you be put out that you had to get out of the way for God to do something else? That's tough, isn't it? When you start talking about it in in real terms, I mean, it it becomes very difficult and, and maybe the ministry that you've always been doing and the thing that you've always been so passionate about in the church for a season needs to take a back seat to something else. Because something else needs the focus of that. And as we're filled with the Spirit, well, we don't have to worry about those things. 
because we know that God's going to guide us and our responsibility in that is to submit to one another. We're only able to do that in the fear of Christ as we're filled with the Holy Spirit. So what becomes produced in our lives, instead of being a carousing church known for people who are constantly looking to drink as much as they can and enjoy as much as they can, they become a church that is spirit-filled, that is joyful, thankful, and submissive. Does that describe your life? What do you think? What would you be most known for at work? The guy, the gal, the person who would go out afterwards and encourage others to drink and be drunk? Or the person who's filled with the Holy Spirit who is joyful, thankful, submits to other believers in fear of Christ, making everyone around them better? Can I ask you to do something this week? Can I ask you if you drink, would you examine your relationship with alcohol? Many times people have told me, I can drink, but I have it under control. And, and I know that you believe that, but I've never met an alcoholic who didn't say the same thing to somebody at some other time in their lives. I and mean, it's just the way that it goes. We all think that we can manage these things. But for us as a believing church, we're not to be controlled by any of those things. We're just not. We're to be filled with the Spirit. Joyful, thankful, submissive. Maybe you start today just by confessing to the Lord any sin that you know about. Surrendering your life to him again and asking him to fill you with the Spirit like Brother Ronnie taught us a couple of weeks back. And I just say to you, if, if you're here and you really thought the, the point of today is about drinking, I hate that because I feel like that means I didn't do a good job because it's very possible that you might not be an alcohol drinker, but you're not saved. And that would mean you're not filled with the spirit. And I wouldn't want you to leave here kind of presuming that that was a, just a great thing. That's not it. See, Jesus came to die on the cross to set us free from these things. Free from these things. And as he sets us free, he gives us his Holy Spirit so that we can be overcomers in all things and we can be filled with the presence of God living in our lives. And that only comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you don't know Christ today, I want you to know Christ. I want you to know him in the power of his resurrection. I want you to know what it means to be truly forgiven of your sin and set free so that you can know what that abundant life is. I'm gonna ask you if you would to bow your heads with me this morning. Heavenly Father, as we've looked at the last couple of weeks, we've, we've looked at some heavy topics for us, Lord. We've looked at what it means to be sexually pure, We've looked at what it means to be wise and understanding. We've looked at what it means to pay careful attention to how we're living. And Lord, today we've had to take a hard look at our relationship with something that the world just doesn't even consider to be an issue. But Lord, you do. And you give us a lot of warnings about it. Father, our prayer today is that we would be a church that's filled with the Holy Spirit.
Lord, would you do that in our lives? We have so much to be thankful for. So much, Lord, that we're excited about. And I'm praying right now that someone in here, Lord, will confess sin, be surrendered to you in their lives and be filled with the Spirit. And Lord, that you would make us a joyful church, a thankful church, a submitting church. Lord, help us to do that, to be known for those things today. Lord, we are truly thankful. In Jesus' name we pray.